everyone. Welcome to Fitz on Fantasy. I'm Pat Fitzmorris. Find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. Before I get to our guest, there is some business to take care of. I need to announce the winner of the contest for a Scott Fishbowl entry. Thank you to everyone who answered. A few of you included some very nice notes, and I thank you for that. It's always nice to hear from listeners, and I got to know a little bit more about some of you, which was really cool. So as you'll recall, the contest involved telling me who you would target in the 22nd and final round of the Scott Fishbowl draft. There were some really good answers here. Among the players named, Tyquan Thornton, Simi Fajoko, Taysom Hill, and I think uh, Hill might be attainable this year, depending on his eligibility. Uh, I think he's going to play tight end this year, so that's interesting. Snoop Connor, Keelan Cole, Romeo Dubs, and I should note that the Romeo Dubs entrant made the bold prediction that Dubs will outproduce fellow Packer rookie Christian Watson this year. It's not inconceivable. Uh, Wandale Robinson, Hassan Haskins. I'll be honest, I don't think Wandale and Haskins are going to make it to the 22nd round, but I still included those folks in the contest. Uh, let's see, who were some of the others? Oh, we had Kenne Wangwu. That almost felt like pandering. That person might know I'm a Wangwu guy. Uh, Greg Dul- Dulcich, 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 still not sure how to pronounce that. KJ Hamler. Now, to be clear, the winner of our contest was chosen randomly and not on the basis of the player they named as a potential 22nd round Scott Fishbowl targets. But to get into the contest, you had to give me a valid player name. I was not going to accept some silly suggestion like Ezekiel Elliott or Alan Lazard, someone who'd have no chance of being available in the 22nd round. It had to be uh, a decent effort at giving me a viable 22nd round name, even if I think Hassan Haskins and Wandale Robinson might not make it to the 22nd round. Uh, That was an earnest effort, so I was not going to exclude those people. So, all right, without further ado, the winner of the contest is, man, I really wish I could get a drum roll here, or at least that Jimmy Chamberlain drum bit at the beginning of Cherub Rock by Smashing Pumpkins. The winner is Mike York. Congratulations, Mike. You are going to be a part of the 12th annual Scott Fishbowl, the biggest, most prestigious fantasy football tournament in the world. You are soon going to be receiving an email from Scott Fish himself, the Willy Wonka of fantasy football. Mike gave me an interesting player as his 22nd man. It's undrafted free agent Julius Chestnut, a running back with the Titans. Chestnut is 5'11", 228 pounds. So he's got some size. He's also got a 58th percentile Spark X score. So he's fairly athletic for a big back. Apparently he catches the ball well. Uh, Tony Pauline of the Draft Draft Network says, and I quote, Chestnut possesses the size and versatility to play on Sundays. If he checks out medically, he could surprise this summer. Hmm. Very interesting. Julius Chestnut a player to keep an eye on in Titans training camp. Once again, congratulations to our contest winner, Mike York, and my thanks to everyone who entered. And hey, there are still going to be chances to win your way into the Scott Fishbowl. A little bird told me that Fantasy Pros has a number of SFB12 entries to give away. So make sure you listen to the Fantasy Pros football podcast, our flagship podcast, 
host Joe Pisapia is soon going to provide details on how you can try to win one of those Scott Fishbowl entries. Uh, also, if you want into the Scott Fishbowl, make sure you go and apply at scottfishbowl.com. Go to the homepage and click on apply on the top left hand top left hand corner of the screen. Sometimes Scott just randomly gives away entries. So give yourself a chance by applying for a spot. You might just get lucky there. So, all right, let's get to this week's guest. It's Sheehan Arnott of the Sleeper Wire Podcast. Joining me now is Sheehan Arnott. He's the host of the Sleeper Wire podcast, and he also co-hosts the Screen Pass podcast on the 32-bit channel. Of all the Australian fantasy analysts living in London, Sheehan may well be the best. Find him on Twitter at Sheehan Solo. Sheehan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's um, it's great to be here. Well, yeah, man. Before we dive into football, um. Can you first tell everyone about the Screen Pass show and how you are blending football with pop culture? So Screen Pass is exactly that. It's a blend of football and popular culture. I think so much of what my understanding of the NFL is and my background with the game comes from things like the Waterboy or playing Madden. And Screen Pass is really just kind of an homage to that in a sense. It's a show where we look at anything tangentially related to the NFL. We've done episodes on um, what if the what if we had a football team just of Marvel characters. We had uh, an episode on Police Academy because of Bubba Smith. We ju- we've just done It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. And um, me and uh, my buddy Justin, we host that. So, yeah, check that out um, wherever you get your podcasts. We're Getting better at it, I think. We we say each week, each episode's our best one. So hopefully, uh, by the time we're 180-odd episodes deep like you are, we um, we might be somewhere close to reasonable. Didn't didn't you and Justin uh, just break down the movie about the field goal-kicking mule a few weeks ago? How is we that? Ex- has that extraordinary work of art uh, stood the test of time? Believe it or not, it's better than you might think. It's called Gus. It's on Disney+, Plus, and I definitely recommend everyone check it out. It is so much a product of its time, but there's a lot of really, I guess, for what should be a a rather ordinary film, pretty big cameos. It's got Mr. C from Happy Days. It's got Dick Butkus as sort of like a weird cucked middle linebacker of the team that this um, donkey ends up playing for. There's a lot of Yugoslavian stereotypes. Uh, it's It's a real joyride. I'm I'm all in for the Tom Bosley cameo. I'm I'm gonna have to go back and see that. Obviously, uh, Sheehan. Before we t- start talking football, I have to ask you about your viewing of Top Gun Maverick the other night because I know that was an interesting experience for you. It was absolutely incredible. A friend of mine uh, through cricket is a talent agent, uh, and he manages a bunch of um, I guess low level. Uh, entertainment types, if you like. And from time to time, he gets uh, tickets to movie premieres. And he, he put an offer in our group chat. Uh, and I bit his hand off when he offered tickets to Jackass 4. That was awesome. Went along. Um, pretty chilled out evening. Open bar. Met Johnny Knoxville. Good time. So he said that he had tickets to Top Gun Maverick. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. 
not a massive Top Gun fan, but I thought it looks amazing. I want to go and see it in the big screen. Why not do it for free? And then the night before, he messages me uh, with the details and says, I'm going to meet you there at six o'clock in your smart clothes. And I replied saying, what do you, what constitutes smart? I mean, I'm very much a like chinos and Hawaiian shirt, 360 days a year sort of character. And he said, no, nah, suit and tie. I thought, oh, hell. My uh, suit was tight before COVID, so diving into the wardrobe to pull that out. Uh, and it turned out that it was the premiere with um, with Tom Cruise and John Hamm and uh, members of the royal family. It was totally surreal, but uh, we got to walk the red carpet with people lined, uh, lined around, waving to the crowd, got to flick the peace sign to them. I pointed to some guy in the crowd and said, you're the real Top Gun. And I think they were just incredibly confused as to why this sort of short chubby Australian guy was waving and yelling at them instead of Tom Cruise or uh, Miles Teller or someone like that. Oh my God. That's amazing. I mean, uh, what an experience. Like people have been going nuts over that movie here in the States and to be able to do the true premiere in London, uh, that had to be a memorable experience. No doubt. Yeah, it was, um, it was incredible. Uh, once in a lifetime for sure. Well, hopefully not because it was so much fun. Hopefully once a year. (laughs) So, um, Jin, you are a Patriots supporter. Let's talk about the Pats, who are probably one of the more inscrutable NFL teams for fantasy purposes in 2022. How do you read this convoluted running back situation? I mean, just trying to peg the value of Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson was tricky enough when they were only competing with each other for touches. And I mean, I guess James White, since he's back from injury. But then the Patriots drafted Pierre Strong and Kevin Harris how are you reading this situation? I mean, death tax and a, was it death taxes and a murky New England backfield, right? Yes, uh, yes. We saw Harris was the clear lead back last year. He was the clear lead in nine of the uh, fifteen games that he played. He was the, the true lead, if you like, in twelve of those. I should say he was the lead in twelve of fifteen and the clear lead in nine of those twelve. He's currently the RB twenty six, around the same mark as. Clyde Edwards-Alaire, uh, Eli Mitchell, Ken Walker, Miles Sanders. That seems about right to me. I think he's going to start the season probably as the lead back. But Ramondre Stevenson, as you say, is probably the best insurance policy going around uh, other than maybe Alex Madison and Tony Pollard. Stevenson, I really liked coming out of college. I thought he was a good get for the Patriots. He's a better pass catcher than you might expect, given he's I guess, profiled or or pigeonholed as a bit of a thumper. Difficult man to tackle. He was among the leaders in broken tackles last year. So I see Stevenson having a bit of value. But of course, you know, James White, as you said, is still in town. I was really surprised that A, he's not a Tampa Bay Buccaneer and B, he's back with the Patriots at all. Uh, Brandon Bolden, mercifully, is gone. I really didn't like him. He was just annoying. Annoying for fantasy. I used to hate when they gave him work. Um, so at least he's a Raider now, but as you say, they've added Pierre Strong and Kevin Harris. So just when you thought there might be a little bit of clarity or, uh, maybe even a role for JJ Taylor, if you'd had him stashed on your dynasty roster income strong, who adds another dimension, um, neither Harris nor, uh, the Rhino are p- particularly quick. Um, strong is a true home run hitter and Kevin Harris is like a classic Patriots thumper. So, I wouldn't be surprised if he finds a way on the roster, either as a fullback or a goal line back, which would be horrible for all of those five. 
So you're just looking at the rookies as kind of peripheral characters, and you're not really letting that affect your willingness to draft either Harris or Stevenson? I would prefer to draft Stevenson over Harris just because of their price. Uh, and given those names around him, Edwards Alaire, uh, Mitchell, Kenneth Walker, Miles Sanders, I'd probably rather most of them over Harris. Harris scored a lot of touchdowns last year, and it didn't feel unsustainable given the Patriots are such a running team, but you just never know what's going to happen week to week. Predictability is so important for fantasy football that you don't want a Ramondre Stevenson week sinking your Damian Harris shares. Right. And we are going to hear people screaming about touchdown regression with uh, Harris throughout the summer, but that bar is still pretty high, I think, because of, uh, you know, they've just kind of tabbed him as the, the goal line back. So I think like seven or eight is a pretty good minimum baseline expectation. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm with you in liking Stevenson a lot. Uh, just like such nimble feet for a big guy. Like I don't really care what his straight line speed is. I mean, he is just, um, you know, like he's able to change direction, it seems like, without gearing down too much, which is kind of nice. And as you said, he's a pretty good pass catcher. Um who do you think is going to be the more valuable fantasy asset at wide receiver, Jacoby Myers or Devontae Parker? This is such a hard one to split because I think the real answer, and this is such a cop-out answer, is Kendrick Bourne. Um, Bourne was far more efficient than Myers. He had 800 yards on 70 targets compared to 866 on 126. Jacoby Myers is a chain-moving wide receiver, but he's super-duper volume-dependent. I when I'm scouting players, like to look at their hand technique. I think that's usually a pretty good relier, uh, usually a pretty good indicator on how they play the position. And Myers still catches the ball like a quarterback. And if you're a quarterback wanting a reliable target, then you want a guy you know is going to catch the ball. And that, to me, is a big issue with Jacoby Myers. Parker, on the other hand, probably going to be a very situational player. The Patriots weren't great as a passing team in the red zone had 169 red zone attempts in uh, 2021. Only 72 of those were passing attempts. That shows the value of Damian Harris uh, and Ramondre Stevenson in that area of the ground last year. But Hunter Henry was their primary uh, goal line weapon. He had 17 targets and eight touchdowns or something like that. I can see Parker coming in to make the team more deadly in the red zone, um, mark up, or demand, I guess, attention from outside receivers, uh, outside cornerbacks. I'm sorry, and um, you know, be a be a weapon, but not necessarily a uh, a fantasy relevant player. Yeah, born born is definitely an interesting uh, sort of monkey wrench in that situation, just because. I don't know. I mean, he was hyper efficient early last year and just, um, you know, it was interesting that he was poking his head inside the top 20 or top 25 for fantasy scoring at receiver. And then he did kind of drop off a little bit, but um, they did throw a lot of money at him in free agency last spring. Uh, So I I guess we shouldn't have been shocked that he had maybe a bigger role than a lot of people were anticipating. Um, But yeah, I just like, I think he just kind of, I'm not really eager to draft him, but I do think he sort of affects the value of Myers and Parker and and not in a good way. I mean, I guess these guys are all pretty much deep dives in the draft, don't you think? Like guys you're looking at in maybe double-digit rounds. Oh, for sure. I mean, Kendrick Bourne is the wide receiver 92. Uh, Jacoby Myers is the wide receiver 58. 
Parker's the wide receiver, the wide receiver 65. Nelson Aguilar doesn't even have an ADP. So, I mean, we're not talking about Jerry Rice, Randy Moss, Terrell Owens here, uh, which is why I think Bourne at wide receiver 92 represents such good value. I was listening to um, a previous episode. You were talking about your Scott Fishbowl last round pick competition. Kendrick Bourne is in that frame. He went the last round pick of my Scott Fishbowl draft last year. Oh, really? He was uh, he was a 22nd rounder, huh? I mean, that was actually pretty good production. Whoever took him was probably starting him a few weeks early in the year. Yeah, yeah, he was Mr. Irrelevant. So, you know, that wide receiver 92, that's your, your difference maker potentially in uh, dynasty leagues, in best ball, in things like Scott Fishbowl. And, you know, a, a wide receiver you can pick up late that's going to probably outperform those ahead of him. Do you remember your 22nd round uh, pick in the Scott Fishbowl last year, Shan? It was uh, the human meatball, Jarrett Patterson. Oh, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, I, I actually thought he was pretty good in his few appearances and uh, looked terrific in the preseason. But, man, I mean, I guess we have to, to leave him for dead, at least for a little while on Washington, now that they've drafted Brian Robinson. And he's basically uh, Patterson is the fourth guy now. It's a shame. Yeah, though. I agreed. Yeah, I liked uh, Patterson. He obviously had those massive blow-up games in college, uh, but he's sort of the quintessential running back. He's built like a running back, looks like a running back, plays like a running back, but just doesn't really have the the sparkle uh, compared to some of the other uh, specimens, I suppose. Yeah, he strikes me as kind of a Devin Singletary type. He's not really a pass catcher, just kind of a runner, a little bit undersized, but he's just sort of evasive. Um, I don't know. Hopefully he gets another shot somewhere at some point. All right. So you mentioned uh, Parker, Myers, uh, Kendrick Bourne, and you even snuck in a Nelson Aguilar mention. But we haven't talked about uh, coveted draft pick Tyquan Thornton. I mean, what did you make of the Patriots' widely criticized draft overall, Shan? I mean, the Cole Strange pick in the first round was unexpected, but I guess you could talk me into that. Maybe it's not that unlike the Logan Mankins pick they made late in the first round in 2005, that pick worked out just fine. But like Tyquan Thornton in the second round? Yeah, I mean, you can't tell me that Dante Skarnecchia didn't have a hand in Cole Strange being at the Patriots, and he might be one of the great offensive line coaches of all time. Um, and if he saw something in him, then you know, who are we to argue and I guess to argue with Bill Belichick as well, uh, the greatest coach of all time. I think Strange eventually plays center. I don't think he's a long-term guard. Um, to me, he seems like every year there's one in the draft where it's, oh, you pick this guy, you plug him in, you don't have to think about the position for 10 years. He kind of has that feeling to him. Uh, he's been playing uh, left guard in OTAs. On when you is probably moving to right guard to cover Shaq Mason. Uh, but I think eventually goes in at center. And, you know, that's nice. Build a bit of rapport with the uh, the quarterback. Tyquan Thornton, on tape, I really liked him. Um, he has beautiful late hands, uh, understands where defenders are. He's not afraid of contact. I think he tracks the ball really well. More meat on a butcher's pencil, but uh, he certainly has speed and and ball skills. It's interesting that the Patriots were in on Marquez Valdez-Scantling, who is a fairly similar player, I think, to Thornton, that uh, big, skinny vertical threat. And that vertical role is super important for the Patriots. They've been trying to 
uh, find someone to play that role for a while. They paid Aguilar to do it. Uh, they had Demir Bird uh, with Cam Newton. He was one of the better receivers for Cam. They had Philip Dorsett as well. So they clearly want someone to play that role uh, because the other uh, wide receivers don't have that vertical speed dimension. Uh, and I think Thornton is an interesting pick and as good as basically any other mid-round pick in the NFL. Yeah, it does seem like that pick was maybe the Patriots uh, issuing a thumbs-down verdict on on Nelson Aguilar, and I wonder if uh, maybe he isn't possibly a camp casualty at some point. Uh, let's broaden the conversation a little bit, Sheehan. Based on early ADPs uh, and early drafts you've done, who are some of your favorite targets? So I'm yet to actually dive into any drafts, but it was... Um... Swatting up on ADPs, I really like Aaron Jones at the 301. I think that is some nice value. Could return a little bit better than that. Um, AJ Dillon is obviously the ghost at the feast for him, Uh, but we know what Jones is capable of. Uh, We know Aaron Rodgers is a big fan. Uh, So at the 301, I think that represents pretty good value. Uh, Antonio Gibson at the 309 uh, should be the major force in that Washington backfield uh, and probably the driving force of the Washington offense, um, the brand new commanders uh, as they are now. And I kind of like Clyde Edwards-Alaire at the 601 as well. Yeah, he's got Rojo for company, but that's about where his value should be anyway. Uh, And of those names I mentioned earlier around Damian Harris, he's probably the one I'm targeting. And then we've mentioned Stevenson anyway uh, from a running back perspective. I tend not to try and draft uh, or build my team around running backs. For whatever reason, the chips tend to fall that I end up with back end of first round picks. Uh, So usually I'll be aiming for wide receivers. Uh, However, I've been kind of spruiking on and off the idea of the club sandwich drafting method, which involves taking a stud running back early and then a whole bunch of wide receivers, then a couple of running backs and filling out your team after that. And so I think Stevenson fits right in that uh, second layer of bread uh, range that I'm looking for. I like that the club sandwich approach. Uh, you know, it's not often that you can, uh, you know, anoint a whole new term for uh, a draft and draft strategy, but that's a good one. So I, I appreciate that one, especially as a foodie. Um, yeah, you you mentioned two guys who I think are not, among the sexier choices for people this year, Antonio Gibson and Clyde Edwards Hilaire. I think those are two guys maybe people are generally down on, but Gibson is finally affordable, um, mm-hmm. more affordable. And like, I think that the drop in ADP accounts for the fact that he's not going to be the passing down back, or at least we think he's not going to be the passing down back as long as JD McKissick is healthy. Um, and, you know, the arrival of, of Brian Robinson, uh, the fact that they spent reasonably high draft capital on one of the better prospects in this running back class is a little bit alarming. But, I mean, Gibson played so well last year while banged up for most of the season. I mean, he had, what, that fractured shin bone or whatever it was. Um, yep. Yeah, and, and you know, they were willing to give him a lot of – even if he was kind of pigeonholed into that early down role, they were give, giving him quite a few touches in that role. So um, 
You know, I can agree, agree, and I think one of these years we're going to get a surprise as far as his usage as a pass catcher. Maybe it takes an injury, um, but I think we'll see it at some point. And then Edward Solaire. I've kind of been warming to him a little bit just because there's no more Daryl Williams, and we know Rojo is a complete train wreck in the passing game. (laughs) So, I mean, like, Edward Solaire has to get those uh, passing down targets, and you know, not that Mahomes is like the the biggest dump off guy uh, among quarterbacks, but still, I, I think we're going to get firm usage there, and I'm sure we're going to see some of Ceh on early downs too. Uh, I like that. Did you say he was going at six oh one these days? Yeah, he's uh, at the six oh one. I we're going to see a different style of offense out of the Chiefs. At the very least, we're going to see them have to throw to different people because Hill's not there. And maybe CEH is part of the beneficiary of that. Yeah. And uh, again, like you're talking about him as sort of that second wave uh, after you've, you know, gotten the bread down. Is Wait, or is he the bread? How does that work in the analogy? So he's probably slightly too early to form the middle part of the sandwich because a proper club sandwich, you'll have uh, bread filling, bread filling, bread. And the idea is that the running backs are the bread. So you have... A guy at the top, if you like, the olive on top of the bread is your stud running back. Um, but the the bread is your running back, and then your fillings are your other positions. And then you just take a couple of flyers on deep running backs at the end of your draft because running backs are eminently replaceable or easier to find a, a spot start running back than it is a wide receiver. Yeah. Uh, so so that, that's the, the rough idea. It's sort of zero RB with, you know, without the stress of zero RB. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if I'm waiting for my second running back or if, uh, you know, at 601 CEH is my third, totally fine with him there. Um, yeah, he's he's been a guy I've been totally out on the last couple of years. Well, last year anyway, but this year I'm starting to get back in after uh, initially thinking I would have no part of him. Uh, what are some players you want no part of at their current cost? Yeah. So two names off the top that it hurts me to say because they were big parts of championship teams for a lot of people, Cooper Cup, Debo Samuel. And they're just overpriced. And yes, they produced at absolutely elite level, but Cup's production to me is a little bit unsustainable and I'd probably rather one of those big five running backs uh, than Cup. So he's currently at the 104, which feels a little bit rich uh, given he's not the standout wide receiver one. And Debo, we just don't know what's going to happen. Yes, he's probably going to be back in San Francisco. We don't know what his usage is going to be like. We don't know who's going to be throwing him the ball. We don't know who's going to be throwing him the ball for how long. Um, so for me, the, what is he like? The 2-0, he's the early twos. No, thank you. Um, T Higgins, I really like. I thought he was great in the Super Bowl. Overpriced at the 401. Uh, and then Leonard Fournette at the 307. Not really interested in him either. Yeah, um, I think the Fournette thing is just, it, it's hard to get away from what we saw last year with Brady just repeatedly dumping off the ball rather than taking hits. And the only thing that scares me there is is bringing in Rashad White as a guy who could potentially help Fournette with that role. Like, I don't know if they want to give Fournette as many touches as he got last year. It just doesn't seem like a recipe for longevity. So, um, but 
I do kind of get the appeal there. And I uh, have to admit, I just took him at 312 in a best ball draft, which is pretty close to that ADP. So, um, yeah, I, I understand that when it uh, push comes to shove and I get into some of my more important leagues, I don't know if I'm going to be in on Fournette. When you say Cup is uh, not your wide receiver one, who do you have there right now? I think he probably is my wide receiver one. I think he's oh, just he overpriced right. for where he is. Um, in terms of pure skill, Jefferson and Chase, I think have him covered. Um, Chase is in a better situation, but we don't want to get stuck in the second year blues. I would be happy to have Cup over um, any of those guys, particularly Adams in a in a new situation. I just feel like the 104s may be a little bit rich. How do you feel about uh, maybe a little bit later in the first round, Cup versus, say, I don't know, Joe Mixon or... Um... Maybe even Derek Henry, if we're talking about a PPR draft. I'd definitely have Henry ahead of um, ahead of Cup for me. Uh, Taylor, McCaffrey, Henry, Cook, Eckler, uh, I think you're all clearly ahead of him. You could argue uh, with Kenny Pickett likely under centre. Najee Harris is just going to continue to see an incredible volume of targets. He's very volume dependent. I don't want to bar of him either uh, for his price. Um, so I think maybe we're looking at the 107 or later. Um, you're buying a guy at his peak value, and that never seems like good business. It was sort of like drafting Stefan Diggs at the back end of the first round last year. There was going to be a level of regression. You can't expect players to have career best years every year. Yeah, and um, I, I don't know if anyone's expecting what we saw last year. Maybe they're expecting 90% of it, maybe expecting 70 to 80% of it is more realistic just because the numbers were so ridiculously over the top. Um, but yeah, I, I understand why you would look at the current price and, and not be a buyer. Um, all right, Sheen, I, I have to get in your background because I'm, I'm sure people are curious. Uh, well, first of all, how long have you lived in London and what prompted you to move there? So I came over for a holiday in 2014 and I loved it so much, I decided I'd finally bite the bullet and actually move here. My best friend was living here at the time. Um, before the, the holiday, I'd quit my job. I'd more or less broken up with my girlfriend, or at least was very much uh, running out the clock in the fourth quarter with it. Um, and so I, I had nothing tying me to being, uh, being in Perth on the west coast of Australia where I'm from. And I thought, to hell with it. Uh, one night was at a, a backyard party. And was having a chat to my mate who lived over here, and we, the the stars aligned, I suppose, and we both had a couple of drinks at the same time. We made plans to go and watch the Super Bowl in Las Vegas, and I thought, well, I'll just tack moving on to to London uh, at the end of that. So it was a, a fantastic decision. Came over here, and uh, yeah, came on a two year visa, and I think it's seven years later now. I'm still here. Oh man! So, um, how did you first get into fantasy football? So I got into fantasy football in the same way I sort of got into the NFL. And this is like we're talking about screen pass off the top of the show. This is kind of my um, background in, in all the sports. I got into fantasy football via the league. Uh, I remember watching it on Netflix when it was on here. Uh, I, was a, I was an NFL fan. I grew up playing Madden and, and following the Patriots in the paper most of the time. Um, so I decided I'd... 
get into fantasy football. None of my mates were into it. I joined a, a league with random people on uh, the NFL.com and uh, got a love for it from there. Lost in my first year in the uh, the championship. Didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and a shout out to, uh, I suppose, everyone's everyone's first, the fantasy footballers and Matt Berry sort of helping me work out what was what at that time. And um, yeah, from there, I was kind of hooked, I guess, as we all are. Yeah. So what what is the level of NFL interest in Australia? Because I think people know that there's a, you know, there are pretty large pockets of fandom in England and maybe some other spots in Europe, but um, I'm not sure people are too aware of what the, the level of interest is in Australia. The game's definitely growing. Basketball is much bigger in Australia than the NFL uh, and has probably been bigger for longer. Uh, but now when uh, it's on free-to-air TV, uh, the timeline doesn't really line up. So those primetime night games are on the next morning in Australia. Uh, that kind of bulk one o'clock kickoff on Sunday is the middle of the night, which makes it hard for me to watch when I'm back visiting family. Uh, so that's not a lot of fun. Um, but people are getting more and more into it. I think there's, well, Australia, I guess, we're, we're a fairly, we're an old, we're an old nation, but a young country, if you like. Um, and in the first part of our history, we were very much aligned with the UK. And I guess as following World War II and as America became, I guess, the world's global superpower, we've seen a shift in our culture more towards uh, the American way of doing things and away from the British way of doing things. And with that has come the the love for American sports. So when I started following it back in 2000 and playing Madden, it was sort of an unknown thing. We thought it was pronounced Maiden. Uh, so that was, you know, my, my introduction to it there. Uh, but now it, it's super duper popular. Um, I think most people, well, most fans of sport will be aware of it. There's plenty of Australians in the NFL. I remember back in the day, Darren Bennett, the punter from the Chargers, was really the only one. Uh, now we've got Jordan Maialata. There's uh, another couple of others. Um, and there's a pipeline of former AFL players into uh, the college system now, and some of them go on uh, to become punters like a, a Mitch Wishnowski or Lachlan Edwards. Some of them, like my mate's younger brother, Max Duffy, kind of wash out. And I think he's in the XFL now or the uh, the USFL. But um, yeah, it's as a people, we love an Australian hook. So as soon as there's an Australian aspect to it, it becomes a really big deal. And that's kind of where we are now. I remember back in the day, my friend and I, we used to go along and watch the Super Bowl at the casino because it was the only time that only place that it was open at seven o'clock in the morning that would be showing sport, and we could get a drink. And um, each year on year, there would be more people there in more jerseys. And I think now it's um, it's kind of a an accepted thing. There's a Patriots themed sports bar in my hometown of Perth. Oh wow! And I mean, I guess football it, it's not that distant a relative from some of the more traditional Australian sports like rugby and Australian rules football. Are you uh, into those sports too? And I know you mentioned cricket at the top of the show, also. Yeah, so rugby was never really my go, uh, either form of it. But I'm a massive Australian rules fan. The mighty Fremantle Dockers, after years and years of being absolutely terrible, we're currently. Uh, third on the ladder and looking like we might play finals for the first time in a little while. So that's uh, super duper exciting. Um, but yeah, cr- uh, cricket is, um, 
I, I fell in love at a very early age and have remained faithful ever since uh, to uh, to the beautiful game of cricket uh, and Australian rules as well. If you've never watched it, it is brutal. There's no pads, no helmets. Uh, it is 22 people. Uh, sorry, 44. Let's try that again. 36 people on a field at a time uh, with an oval-shaped ball. There are a couple of Americans in the league. Uh, Mason Cox, you might have heard of him. Um, certainly a big deal that uh, that he played uh, in Australia. He's still going around. Um, but no, definitely check that out. But it's a bit like the NFL. It's on at weird times uh, because of the time difference. Yeah, it's a, a fun sport to watch. I remember in the early days of ESPN when they uh, you know, still did not have agreements with Major League Baseball, um, any really any of the major sports leagues. They were showing things like Australian rules football and, uh, you know, friends and I got into Australian rules football because it was on ESPN all the time. And it was a very entertaining game for sure. Um, so I, I have to ask, Shin, what's your take on British food overall? Like, are there certain British foods you either love or hate? I mean, it's the, the classic joke that people make is Britain spent years trying to colonize the world for spices and use none of them in their cooking. Um, <laughs> we were talking off air this weekend is the queen's jubilee she's been uh, on the throne for 70 years and um when her father was coronated they created this dish called coronation chicken which is curry powder chicken mayonnaise and raisins and it is absolutely horrible but to give you some idea of the culinary culture here people think that's good oh man um so the best thing about the British is they've really embraced food from other cultures. So the national dishes here are curries. There's such a large subcontinental population here that I'm certain some of the best curries in the world are in the UK. A lot of it's really bland, but there's so much kind of that diner influence. Like you go out to a pub here and yeah, you'll get fish and chips that kind of hit and miss. The chips in this country are always horrible. Um, but there'll often be like big burgers, ribs, uh, stuff you'll see in a, a roadside diner in the US is making its way over here uh, for the better, I say, because, um, yeah, things like pickled oysters, no good. Yeah, I think uh, you can't go wrong with the safer options if you're in a, a British pub or restaurant, burgers, uh, club sandwiches, um, the curries. Some of the pubs actually have like curries of the day and they're really good. And I think the best Indian food I've ever had was in St. Andrews, Scotland. So uh, the the curry scene is pretty impressive over there. Are there any Australian delicacies that you don't get to eat as often as you'd like? So whenever I go back home or I have a friend coming over here, always ask them to bring a suitcase full of um, Tim Tams and shapes. You can get Tim Tams at Target in the US. So you may be familiar with those. Uh, shapes are sort of, they're just kind of savory biscuits. Uh, that I quite like. I really miss a proper chicken parma, uh, which is, I guess, like an Italian chicken, um, you know, breaded chicken in a tomato sauce covered in cheese. Um, they're the ones I, I really miss the most. And the seafood we get back home is incredible. Um, it's probably pretty similar to being on the west coast of America, um, that fresh out of the ocean, or even um, obviously Maine, super famous for his lobsters. Where I'm from, we have crayfish, very different to crawfish. They are a bit more like a lobster. Um, but again, despite being an island, the seafood over here is terrible. 
but back home, it's uh, it's incredible. So I'm actually off to Greece in a couple of hours, and I'm gonna drown eating all the stuff that I can't get here. Oh, very nice. Uh, yeah, chicken parm big here too. What what is a tim tam? What are tim tim tam is a chocolate biscuit. Um, it's sort of two two parallel biscuits with kind of a a creamy chocolatey filling then covered in chocolate. Uh, I definitely recommend it. The Tim Tam Slam is a popular way of eating it where you bite the corners off and then suck a coffee through it. Um, oh, my God. Definitely That's recommend un- it. And they're at Target in the U.S. All right, I've got a Target less than two miles from my house. I'm, I'm getting a Tim Tam, a uh, bag of Tim Tams immediately after the show, Sheehan. Uh, what about, <laughs> do you do Vegemite or is, is that a no-go for you? No, I absolutely love Vegemite. One of the first things I bought when I found out my... Uh, company offered free breakfast was a jar of Vegemite. You can't get it everywhere over here. So if I see it in the shops, I generally will buy some. The mistake people make is they put it on too heavily. You really just got a a thin scraping rather than like a a New York bagel bagel schmear of cream cheese. (laughs) I I really like it. It's it's good to chuck in uh, cooking as well as like a a meaty stock uh, umami addition. So yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of Vegemite. I have it most days. What's your go-to beer? Uh, I was never really a big beer drinker. I used to drink a lot of cider when I moved over here, and I sort of forced myself to start drinking more IPAs and pale ales to slow down the speed at which I was uh, getting through the cider. Because of course, like drinking's a social thing over here in a totally different way. Uh, it's fairly common to go out for a beer or two after work, and if you're getting through your pint too quickly, then it's, it's antisocial. Um, so I started drinking more and more beers and now I, I don't know what took me so long, but there's a, a brewery not far from where I live. I say not far, it's about five minutes walk uh, called The Goodness and their Yes IPA is absolutely beautiful. Um, so that is my go-to whenever I can get it. Um, but I'm, I'm always up for trying something new, even if it's at, um, whether it's on tap or in a can. I just finished a, a six pack of Earl Grey Pale Ales, and uh, they were really nice. Oh, very nice. The uh, availability of cider in the uh, UK is something I I kind of miss. Like you don't get many ciders on tap at like the average pub in the US. So, um, you know, I've I've had a lot of Magners when I've been over there, and uh, good good stuff. I kind of miss that. Um, all right, Sheen, getting back to football. Uh, let me ask you this. So we we did a rookie mock together recently. In the, the dynasty rookie drafts you've been in this year, which players did you end up getting in multiple leagues? So I had to go back and have a look at a couple. Romeo Dubs has been a fairly uh, common addition to my team. I think I've picked him up in three of my four drafts so far. I think he's a, a nice value in that mid to late third round paired with a really good quarterback in Aaron Rodgers there's clearly an or clearly a pathway to work for someone in that offense and I'm going to be honest with you I'm not a massive fan of Christian Watson I thought he just produced because he was bigger and faster than those around him in kind of middling college um, competition so uh, Alfred Fernandez from campus to Canton is a really big fan of Romeo Dubs I think he's a very good player evaluator and for a year where I haven't really had a chance to delve too closely into some of these wide receivers. I, I kind of feel like wide receiver scouting is my bread and butter. Um, his endorsement of dubs was uh, was good enough for me. Yeah, um, 
I'm kind of intrigued by him, and I wonder if he might not wind up being sort of the replacement for Marquez Valdez-Scantling, because I thought I saw that Dubs was like one of the most productive players in FBS on post patterns. Um, you know, and uh, Rogers, Aaron Rodgers has made a lot of hay over the years on on post patterns. Uh, anyone else from the, the rookie drafts, like earlier on, who you've been sort of setting your sights on? I, um, humble brag, have been drafting at the back end of a lot of rounds. Oh, very uh, so nice. I, <laughs> so I've ended up with um, some scraps. I, I can't remember which episode of yours you were talking to. It might have been the one with John Bosch. Where it's like the first round this year is kind of only nine, ten players deep. And so if you're at the 112, it's kind of a – you may as well take a stab at someone. So – I took Damian Pierce in a couple. I got him early in one and, and later in another. I think he's decent value for a potential RB1 on a team. I like to build my dynasty roster around uh, established wide receivers and plug in the rookie running backs or rookie second-year running backs where I can. Um, and, and he fits that model nicely. And then a couple of late dart throws. My other strategy has been to try and trade back, pick up, multiple picks in the third and fourth round. I always feel the hit rate's so low, so why not give yourself more chances to hit? Uh, I've picked up uh, Jashawn. I think it's Jashawn Corbin. I've never heard it said out loud, the um, UDFA from the Giants. Uh, one of my first articles with Sleeperwire uh, was what I termed Bradbury candidates, named after Australian Winter Olympic gold medalist Stephen Bradbury, who won his gold medal after everyone in front of him fell over. And uh, in case that's not good enough, he also got into the final because in the semifinal, everyone in front of him fell over. So for me, Bradbury candidates are UDFAs, bottom of the roster guys who don't or sort of need everyone to fall over, but they've got a clear path if they are there. James Robinson was one from the first time I did it. Uh, I think he worked out really nicely. I think Corbin... Uh, could quite clearly be the backup to Saquon Barkley. And as soon as you're the backup to Saquon Barkley, you are a light breeze away from meaningful snaps. Yeah, every every year, Shin, we see a Bradbury candidate uh, come through and, and become like a coveted waiver wire commodity in week five or week six, where um, everyone has fallen over in front of them. And uh, suddenly people are, are spending 70, 80% of their uh, fab budget on someone like that, just because we see running backs come out of the fog every year. And there are guys who are not even, you know, in the top 80 of people's draft boards right now who are going to be falling ass backward into prominent roles at some point during the season. So I I totally believe it. And right now, I mean, Matt Breida, I think, is the the primary backup to Barkley. Um, So in this rookie mock, we, uh, we were in together. You had George Pickens at 112. What's your sense of how the wide receiver situation in Pittsburgh shakes out? Do you think Pickens' arrival spells doom for Chase Claypool? I think Pickens is a very good player. He has incredible ball skills. Claypool has shown himself to be a knucklehead, and so has Pickens. And often good franchises don't tolerate knuckleheads for too long. The Steelers put up with Antonio Brown because he was good, and as soon as he wasn't good, they got rid of him. Um, I could see the same happening with Claypool. More interestingly for me, Deontay Johnson is a UDFA after this year, Claypool UDFA after next year. I think Johnson is a really good fit for Kenny Pickett. I'm not a massive Pickett fan. 
I am entirely certain his draft capital and draft value was determined by Jordan Addison, who for me is the best player in the class next year. Uh, and I think Deontay Johnson is a good estimation of uh, that sort of player. The Steelers did lose 1,200 snaps between uh, Ray Murray McLeod, Juju, James Washington, which means there is a little bit of an opportunity. Pickens probably starts off as their fifth target, but I think he could get past Fryermuth, get past Claypool, uh, which leads him as their third in what will probably be a pretty high passing volume offense, even with a rookie under center. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I like the Addison shout out. It's never too early to, to start hyping up the 2023 draft class on this show. So uh, I like that. <laughs> um, what? Let's talk about Austin Eckler for a second. Like, where do you think he should be going in drafts? I mean, obviously he's going in the first round. Uh, it seems like a lot of people are willing to take him top three or top four, even though touchdown regression seems inevitable and the Chargers drafted Isaiah Spiller. Like the Chargers keep trying to get someone to help with this rushing load and they keep falling on their face with Josh Kelly, um, Larry Roundtree last year. Like they don't want to spend a lot of draft capital on this, but they keep uh, getting duds and guys who just don't fire in any sort of um, early down usage um, so where should we, assuming that Spiller maybe works out a little bit better than some of those guys, like what's a reasonable spot to take Austin Eckler in the first round? What, what constitutes too early for you? I think too early would be the one Oh one. And then I think you could probably make an argument for him any pick after that. For oh, me, wow. it really is personal preference. Whether you want McCaffrey, Henry Cook, they're proven commodities to a degree, brand names. Eckler still has the stink of UDFA on him. Uh, but I think he hit the nail on the head is they've been trying to find someone to lift his rushing load. He's still going to get 90 targets as far as I'm concerned in that offense. The, yeah, they've got Keenan Allen. Yeah, they've got Mike Williams. But we're going to see Austin Eckler catch a lot of balls, possibly 70, 80 balls, plus get maybe seven, 800 rushing yards at least. With 20 touchdowns last year in 16 games, there's going to be a natural regression there. But I wouldn't be surprised to see him find the end zone once a week. I think we'll certainly be expecting it. Uh, and for me, that's good enough to have him at the top of the board. They clearly they, they took a luxury pick, I think, in Zion Johnson in the first round. That's the kind of pick you make when you're thinking, you know, we're not a player away here necessarily. We think we've got a pretty good team. So that should hope, or hopefully punch some holes in the defense for him. And I like Spiller, but he's not a pass catcher. Um, if he can help rest the legs, uh, then Eckler will be fresher in the red zone. He was second for attempts inside 20 last year, fourth inside 10. So I don't think they're the touches that are necessarily going to go to Spiller. But when you think about it, for me, it's something like listening to a Blink-182 song where you've got a, a quiet bit to make the loud bit sound louder. I think that'll be Isaiah Spiller. Um, yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, I'm a little wary of Eckler with a, a top three or top four spot, but, um, I, I do think that you could probably still cut the touchdown total in half and give him, uh, under 200 carries and he could still give you a season similar to, you know, what we have traditionally seen from Alvin Kamara, which is certainly worthy of a, a you know, mid round, if not higher first round pick. 
what is your take on Cam Akers for this year, Sheehan? I know some people are down on him because he didn't do much in the playoffs, but I think their willingness to turn the backfield over to him for the playoffs bodes well for his 2022 workload. Are, are you reading that at all, or do you think uh, he's maybe a little overpriced? I think at uh, RB17 and the 312, he is a little bit overpriced, but I don't think it's egregious. I think we're maybe talking half a round, uh, and that being the case, I think it's okay to kind of take him where he's taking. I think it represents solid value. Um, the guys who win you leagues are not the players you draft in your first overall pick. They're the guys you draft three, four, five, six, seven that have that you know, top 12 potential. And Cam Akers has that. He probably has top six potential reality. But as always, opportunity is king in fantasy football. Um, he has that opportunity. They're a good offense. There are a lot of mouths to feed. Uh, and we're going to see Daryl Henderson. Thankfully, he's seemingly injured every other week. Um, I, I think it'll be good news for Akers. Teams can't key in on stopping the run because you've got to stop Cup, you've got to stop Stafford, you've got to stop uh, Allen Robinson. So it is interesting. Backfield split will be critical, but more so it will be his work in the passing game. If he can get a meaningful amount of targets, then I think he should coast in to being an RB1 if he plays a full season. And given he's at the 312, you could conceivably start your draft with DeAndre Swift, Alvin Kamara, and Cam Akers. And I think no matter else... Oh, no matter what else happens after that, you're going to be leaving the draft room pretty happy. Yeah, that wouldn't be bad at all to get him as, uh, you know, your second running back there, uh, maybe even third if you did decide to go with the uh, the power bully running back start. Uh, how do you typically handle the quarterback position in a redraft? Are, are you generally just value hunting or are there certain types you like to draft? Do you, do you generally like to attack it early? Do you generally like to wait? How do you go after quarterback? So I targeted stacks a lot last year, and the two that I targeted were Rodgers and Adams and Murray and Hopkins. Now, one of those paid off really well, and the other one not so much. But that's, the, I guess, the lottery of the stack approach. But for me, targeting those stacks is a bit like being – it's it's the fantasy equivalent of that college coach who just goes for it on fourth town every time. You've got to score points to win games. The more points you score, the better. And I would rather – attack it aggressively and try and score as much and as quickly as possible and force the other teams to keep up. So stacks is, is kind of where it's at. I played around the year before with double tapping on premium quarterbacks uh, in super flex leagues. I wasn't as successful. Um, so I think I might try and attack the stack, if you like, again this year. The one that maybe I'll look to most of all might be Chase and Burrow. Um, that's relatively affordable, probably more affordable than, than Rogers, Adams, Murray Hopkins last year. Uh, Murray and Hopkins is, is affordable, more affordable this year. If you believe in Kyler and don't mind waiting out on Hopkins, particularly if you add Hollywood Brown, um, although he's probably a little bit high to, to do the triple with Mahomes and Kelsey is feasible, but a little bit rich for my blood. And given their, their kind of two one positions, it leaves you a little bit exposed. Uh, Herbert Allen, also feasible, but Allen doesn't have that explosive potential that you really want at the position. And I kind of like Lamar Jackson and uh, Mark Andrews, but again, you get into that territory of their their one-off limited pick positions that leaves you vulnerable. Uh, 
so for me, it, it'll be Chase and Burrow, I think might be the one I look at most of all. Uh, and then maybe if I get Jefferson, getting Cousins later. Yeah, that's uh, Rich Rebar was talking about that on last week's show, how that Jefferson Cousins is very easy to stack uh, Vikings pass catchers with. And, and he thinks that that could be a more valuable passing game this year because they're going to be running more 11 personnel than they have in the past. Um, boy, the uh, Murray Hopkins stack was probably not that cheap last year. This year, I think you could probably piece that together in like the sixth and seventh round which would be uh, interesting. Yeah, yes, you've got to wait it out for uh, you know September and October, but come November, that could be a nice combination and, and much more affordable this year. How do you typically handle the tight end position? Do you have a plan of attack for this year? Yeah, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool streamer. Um, I think unless... Oh, if we're talking dynasty startup, um, 100% go and get the early tight end. Who was your guest on recently who was advocating for Kyle Pitts being the 101 in Dynasty? That was also John Bosch, yeah. Right. I He said it, and I thought, you idiot. And then as I was listening to him, I'm like, actually, no, I'm the idiot here. That is a very, that is a very <laughs> good tactic. So for me, I think an early tight end becomes a millstone around your neck because you have to play them. And if you then end up in a position where you are starting, let's say, Kelsey and another tight end, then what's what's the value of having Travis Kelsey? Um, last year, we saw Dalton Schultz, uh, Hunter Henry, Dawson Knox were all undrafted or close to it and finished among the elite scoring tight ends. So for me, I'm happy to wait on it, pick up better players. like uh, Nada, my co-host at Sleeperwire, this is one of the things that we really hammered on in the lessons we learned out of this year. And we were kind of hot on it at the start of the season, but it, it sort of bore out as well. Is people who are drafting like your TJ Hawkinson's Dalton Schultz's in like the fifth and sixth round. Don't just wait. If you're going to pick one of them, just wait uh, because the difference is not as important. So for me, I'll be targeting Noah Fant, Hayden Hurst, Robert Tunyon, Austin Hooper, Mo Ali Cox, who are uh, tight end 17 and beyond, playing the matchups uh, and hoping someone becomes, you know, the idea of streaming is that you don't need to stream uh, because you find someone who's good enough to not stream, but you don't have that kind of sunken cost, which is so hard to get over mentally for fantasy football players. I'm very much with you in that. I just don't like the build of my rosters when I go tight end early in most cases. I mean, like I have taken some shots in, in best balls and such on, on Kelsey like the last couple of years, but I just don't like the way that the team rounds out after that. And the middle class I've just had such bad luck with. And, and you've had some interesting names in there of guys who used to be considered middle class tight ends who are now much more affordable Uh Austin Hooper, Robert Tunyon. Um, uh, I'm not sure if you had Najoku in there. I guess Najoku is probably back to being, he's going to be middle class again. But um, yeah, they're like the the cheaper tight ends are the way to go now and try to get those tight ends who used to be, uh, you know, like eighth round picks and, and now can be had in like the 14th. Well, yeah, Austin Hooper is the one for me. I think he'll go undrafted, but he is... We've seen what he can do when he has uh, target share in an offense that has Robert Woods and um, Burks and not really a lot else. So he could easily end up being that number one target 
for Ryan Tannehill, and that's a pathway to fantasy success at the position. Folks, that's Sheehan Arnett of the Sleeper Wire Show and the Screen Pass Show. Find him on Twitter at Sheehan Solo. Sheehan, so glad we got to catch up. Thanks for stopping by. It was an absolute pleasure. And that's all for this week's episode. My thanks once again to our guest, Sheehan Arnett of the Sleeper Wire podcast and the Screen Pass podcast. Find him on Twitter at Sheehan Solo. That's S-H-E-A-H-A-N-S-O-L-O. Fits on Fantasy is produced by Calm Kelly, who also co-hosts the excellent Rotoviz Overtime podcast, by the way. You can find Calm on Twitter at Overtime Ireland. The music is provided by International Jet Sets. Friends, thank you so much for stopping by. It was great to have you with me. And I hope you'll circle back again next week when I will be joined by another wonderful guest. Until then, so long, everyone. I've got a head.